Hello, this is Dr. Mary. It's December 30th of 2021, and I'm recording some comments in response to a conversation that's been pretty active on Twitter this week <clears throat> that follows uh, on an article published in at Slate.com. The article title relates to... Um, mental health issues in uh, homelessness, in particular post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, one of the main points of the article is that too much attention is paid to the pathology of uh, homeless people and not enough attention paid to the economic circumstances that uh, contribute to and foster homelessness. Uh, the full title of the article is post. I think it's post-traumatic stress is a fact of life for people who are homeless. Something like that. Uh, let me let me try to find it. Wait a second. The full name of the article is post-traumatic stress is an overlooked fact of life for homeless people, and it was published uh, fairly recently on Slate. Com. I encourage everybody to read this article. I think it's very important. Um, it raises many points beyond the specific one about post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, I want to discuss it in terms of the characterization that homeless people are mentally ill. Um, and I want to begin by saying... Um, a few things about this. First of all, none of us are in perfect physical health. I mean, I don't know anybody in perfect physical health. If you want to go to a doctor, a physician, there's probably something that you can be encouraged to work on uh, to improve your, your physical health. By the same token, I don't think there's anybody in perfect mental health either. So if you go to a mental health professional, they're probably going to find something that you could do better with. Uh, so the likelihood that you'll get diagnosed with something is pretty high. However, there's a big difference between medicine and psychology, a huge difference. And one of them relates to the length of time that it has been a credible field. Um, psychology is a little less, as an official discipline, is a little less than 200 years old. Um, there was a prominent German psychologist uh, in the 1870s, William Wundt, Wilhelm Wundt, W-N-D-T, who was considered the father of psychology. So that's less than 200 years ago. Whereas, with respect to medicine, the father of medicine is a Greek, um, a Greek scientist and physician called Hippocrates, and it was after him that the physicians take an oath called the Hippocratic Oath. Now, Hippocrates was born almost 500, 500 years before Christ. So basically, the roots of medicine 
go back about 2,500 years. And the roots of psychology as a discipline go back less than 200 years. So, you know, we have much to learn in the field of psychology and the treatments and the interventions and all are still being developed. <clears throat> and there is also even some people who question whether um, psychology, whether um, there was even such a thing as mental illness. You know, there was a famous psychologist at a major medical center in Syracuse called uh, Dr. Thomas Zaz, S-Z-A-S-Z, -S -Z, who wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. And, you know, he um, uh, was uh, basically of the school of thought that a lot of what was going on was cognitive and behavioral uh, and not disease processes. Now, that's a really inadequate summary of his views. I mean, he wrote many, many things. And I thought he was very interesting because, uh, you know, I did my PhD work at Syracuse University and I would be in the medical school library all the time, the State University of New York Upstate Medical Center. Uh, I, I went there once a week for years to review all of the journals that were published, you know, in that week, the medical journals that related to neuropsychology. So um, there was a large portrait of him uh, in the area of the library. And, you know, by this time he had retired, but he was living not too far away. And, uh, you know, I had a, a an interesting conversation with him via email uh, for a year or two prior to his death. Uh, because, you know, at, this was around the time when the cognitive behavioral strategies were um, becoming much more credible as treatment interventions than other psychological uh, interventions that were, uh, you know, that came and went. There are many that came and went because they just didn't stand the test of time. But the cognitive behavioral uh, uh, interventions have, to this day, gained um, gained recognition and appreciation. I mention all of this because... Psychology is the only field that I know of in which everybody views themselves as an expert. You know, there is nobody who would, no lay person, which is a, you know, non-medical person, would presume to diagnose cancer or heart disease or Parkinson's disease. Yet we have non-professional people <clears throat> making statements that are life-changing <clears throat> about mental health disorders. Um, and <clears throat> in all of my work in this field, which is, you know, going on 20 years, uh, trying to get people housed and going through all of the steps and all of the, you know, climbing over all the roadblocks that we had to uh, uh, navigate, <clears throat> one thing uh, bothered me tremendously, and that is, we have non-professional, you know, you start the process at a social services office where you go in and you apply with your client for um, assistance. And hopefully this will include uh, 
in New York State, every state is different, but in New York State where I'm located, uh, you can get Medicaid health insurance and you can get uh, food stamps and you can get um, oh some other things I can't remember right off the t tip of my tongue, but uh, also you can get sent to a shelter. Uh, and, you know, the social services department will pay for the shelter. Now, the way you start this process is you, you go to the county office building with your, the person you're helping, which I did many times, and the first thing you're going to do is see a secretary uh, at an uh, office where, you know, everything, you can't, there's all this glass and you speak through a small glass hole and, uh, the secretary is empowered, actually, to say you don't qualify and not even give you uh, an application to apply for services. So that's the end of the story right there. Uh, I never came to understand how a secretary uh, spending one to two minutes at a window could make a determination that you were not eligible for services. But nevertheless, this happens. And you if that happens, you won't be given an application for services and nothing will help will happen that that will help you to get any of these benefits. Now whenever I went there, um and I went as an advocate for disabled homeless people, um you know, I would have complained bitterly if that happened uh you know what what do you mean the person is ineligible to you know he's been living outdoors under a bridge for seven years and he's got this and that problem and so uh it it didn't happen when i went there and i often felt uh that they wouldn't dare do it to me but there were other people serving as advocates who, who had this experience so uh, basically you can be declined right then and there uh, by somebody who spends two minutes listening to you and probably has no credentials beyond what would be required to be a secretary. Uh, now, supposing you get um, an application for services, well, then you're going to see uh, an intake person. And, and this is where the problems all started with my people because you know, when I first started this work, I identified those at highest risk of death on the street. They were almost all in their 40s. Their average age of death is 40. Well, over the years, it's varied between 46 and 48. But <clears throat> homeless people, chronically homeless people, those who've been out there for years, die in their late 40s, generally, 30 years younger than housed people. Um, and they often have multiple disabling conditions if they've been out there that long. And, you know, what I found in my research, which I've spoken of often, was a, a strong prevalence of traumatic brain injuries in these people, uh, which can affect their behavior, you know, in, in many ways. Um, they can forget things, they can forget appointments, they can't sometimes, I mean, everybody's different depending upon the area of the brain that is damaged, but um, what happens when you go to social services, you'll see an intake person who I don't know what kind of credentials they have, but I remember going in there once early in my experience and, um, you know, 
they were never happy to see me at social services. They were not welcoming to me as an advocate. Um, and over time, they developed some policies to try to make it impossible for or, or very hard for people to have me as an advocate. Um, but in the beginning, uh, what would happen is we'd go in and I remember one man in particular, there was no question in my mind that he had a really serious brain injury. And so we go in and the person says to him, you go to mental health and you go to Chad, which is the name of the substance abuse treatment center in the community. Um, And I remember saying, well, you know, I'm wondering if, you want, and of course, the issue is that if you don't go to these places, you're not going to get or maintain your benefits. Uh, if you don't show up for your weekly appointment, they'll cancel your foods. Well, probably not. Your, I, I forget what they'll cancel. It's it's all different, but they'll cancel some things. In particular, if you are receiving a motel room, they'll cancel that, um, and. So this woman insists that he has to go to mental health. It doesn't spend five minutes listening to us. You go to mental health. Well, I said to her then, you know, I'm wondering whether um, he could go to see a neurologist because I've had a chance to observe his behavior for some time now, and I think he has a brain injury. And she looked at me like I was the devil incarnate, with this ugly stare and said to him, pointed her finger at him again and said, you go to mental health. Well, you know, we went to the mental health. Uh, He just hated it there and couldn't deal with it. And they didn't like him there either. So in order to meet the requirement uh, so that all of his benefits would be maintained, I literally accompanied him to every session there because um, he wouldn't stay, you know, if if I weren't there. He would get angry, and, you know, he had a big anger management problem, which is not unusual with people with frontal lobe brain injuries, and he would just storm out. Well, you know, in a minute, they would say he didn't keep his commitment to attend the meeting, and his benefits, uh, in particular his motel room, would be canceled. Uh, It took us about a year there before they finally gave up on him and told us to go to a brain injury place. Well, all of this was at the behest of this intake worker at social services who, who didn't, you know, if you go to a mental health professional, they're going to spend close to an hour listening to you Uh, sometimes even more if it's initial appointment, to diagnose your condition. Well, you you can't diagnose it in less than five minutes in a a, um, social services office, but this is what has been happening, and this continued uh, in all of the people uh, that I I went to, uh, brought there. You know, they, they were told to go here or told to go there based on what? Nothing, habit habit of sending them here or there, and maybe preconceptions that they're all mentally ill or what whatnot. Um, and it was really frustrating, you know. Uh, so, but fortunately, they did have Medicaid, and I was able to 
get them in directly to see a neurologist. And in all of these cases, nearly all of them, my own impression of a brain trauma was confirmed. And I would go back and um, talk to them again about this, which, you know, there wasn't much... Uh, it was enormously frustrating when you have people with literally no time to interview, no interest in your story, uh, a bad attitude, which is what I found most of the time, uh, and sending you off to places for interventions that might make sense for some people but might not for others. So, you know, I, I often wondered, I... I wish if they want them to go to mental health that they would, you know, send them to a physician first to find out if anything else they needed to do um, because nothing else was suggested. However, given my role as a rehabilitation professional, I did take them to physicians and get them diagnosed with other things and got them treatment for these other things uh, that... But it's, you know, it, it's, and it's gotten worse. This whole business of lay people diagnosing homeless individuals with mental illnesses. Now out in California, for example, there is some legislation where it doesn't take much at all for some, uh, they have a police department out there that has a police affiliate, which is mainly, uh, police groupies, I guess, who are interested in police work, but they can have you 5150, I think it is. Um, other people can as well. Uh, and, you know, this is going to end up on your your record that you were sent to a psychiatric hospital when maybe you don't even have a psychiatric disorder. And in particular, this is an issue with respect to homelessness because it has been my impression for many, many years that homelessness, at the very least, exacerbates any psychiatric disorders. If you are living under conditions of total desperation, you're going to have any anxiety you had is going to be magnified. Any depression is going to be magnified. Uh, when you're afraid somebody's going to rape you or kill you if you fall asleep, your paranoia becomes magnified. Uh, so diagnosing people in conditions of homelessness with mental health disorders strikes me as a very inaccurate procedure, especially especially when these referrals are being made by non-professional personnel. Uh, like case workers or outreach workers or police auxiliary people. So um, this I'm now up to closing in on 20 minutes of this recording, but I thought, you know, the best way to address some of the questions that arose on Twitter over this uh, article from Slate.com would be to create a recording uh, because I don't think I could have written all of this on Twitter. Uh, well, as you can see, uh, this answer or this conversation is too long for, you know, typing into short Twitter um, comments. Uh, but, but let me summarize what I've been saying here. 
there's nobody in perfect physical health. There's nobody in perfect mental health. Um, and when you start talking about mental health, we all experience anxiety. We all experience depression. We all experience a little paranoia with processing like what's going to happen and you know it it, it is the degree of infirmity uh the degree of disability that it presents that becomes the issue and the degree can be exacerbated by conditions of extreme trauma like homelessness and you know this is one of the reasons why there is such a strong um advocacy right now for what's called trauma-informed care. And trauma-informed care looks more at what happened to you rather than at what's wrong with you. So it's a completely different approach to the question. Uh, You know, a mental illness diagnosis is about what's wrong with you. Uh, A trauma-informed evaluation is going to be looking at more about what happened to you and how that accounts for the behavior that's being observed. And, of course, once the circumstances that are creating are exacerbating the observed behaviors, once they're reduced or eliminated, you're going to see a reduction in these symptoms. So I think it's very important as we you know, make mental illness, uh, you know, the, 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 the deciding factor in a lot of uh, homeless interventions, I think it's very important for this entire, you know, approach to dealing with homeless people uh, be, be changed. You know, it, it, I'm always responding to people who say, well, we we just need more housing. You know, we don't. We need more housing, but we also need a a massive improvement in the way services are delivered to people who may be experiencing mental health symptoms uh, because they're mentally ill, but also are because they're living in conditions of extreme trauma. Um, and, And... you know, and that's what homeless people are living in. I mean, and there are many forms of trauma. I mean, one of the ways they tortured prisoners at Guantanamo Bay uh, was by noise all the time, playing recordings all the time. Well, if you've ever spent any time under a bridge, you you will learn very quickly that the no- noise is unbearable. The noise of all of the vehicles overhead on this concrete roadway is unbearable. Uh, and, you know, I, I think as, as I'm concluding this, I, I want to make another point here. We often look for one cause of something. We think, well, the economy caused homelessness, or mental illness caused homelessness, or the war caused homelessness. Those of us who have been trained to conduct experimental research do understand how naive a statement that is, because once you start conducting research at the PhD level, which is basically what a PhD degree is, it's about learning how to conduct high-end research, you're going to learn very quickly that there are many causes of nearly everything. And the fact that we might find uh, that 
one thing is documented as a significant cause, uh, you know, that that isn't enough. There could be numerous other causes. So you want to take a second step and look at like a pie diagram and say, well, if this were a pie, how big a slice of the pie would this significant finding account for? And it might only be a small slice of the pie, which means if it's 5% of the pie or 10% of the pie, that 90% other causes. So we need to stop looking for one cause of anything uh, and start looking at all of the causes that contribute to homelessness and start addressing all of them. But my experience, of course, is most with um, the the disability issues and the very high level of disability in the chronically homeless population. In particular, and I still, after all these years, find it hard to get people to, to look closely at uh, neurologists and uh, at diagnosing brain injuries because that's what I found to be very prevalent in the chronically homeless populations that I've worked with. All right, uh, so that's enough for today. I hope this has been helpful and um, uh, that it stimulates further discussion among all of the people uh, interested in this topic. Uh, so until next time, this is Dr. Mary. Bye-bye.